Welcome back for episode 5 of the second season of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. Our guests this week are Pat Murphy, author and veteran BBC cricket reporter. Hello, Pat. Hello, Gary. When did I become veteran? Was it a decade ago or two <laughs> decades ago? <laughs> well, um, yeah, we, so, some of us look forward to being veterans, <laughs> but uh, you've already achieved such exalted status. Fantastic, Pat. Care in the community. Uh, <laughs> also, Mike Selby, former chief cricket correspondent of The Guardian. Hello, Mike. Morning, Gary. Am I veteran too? I, 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 that's entirely within your gift, Mike. Oh, vintage. <laughs> and I'm delighted to welcome David Gower. And if you don't know him, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Hello, David. Uh, very good day to you. Um, veteran or otherwise, I really don't mind. <laughs> well, we're going to uh, look at some of your battles uh, from 1985 later, David. So I think you're a, you're a veteran of, of battles. So we'll, we'll I have that. That was a long time ago, so that's, that confirms veteran status. <laughs> I'm now a non-combatant. That makes me a veteran. Well, before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Employment Law Specialists, Anderton Law, without whom none of this would happen. And thanks also to our listeners, some of whom have taken the opportunity to tweet us at CrickShow80s90s, including Gordon Sutcliffe and Jonathan Wood, who actually liked the 1999 Cricket World Cup song, um, as indeed one or two others did. Dig into our archive if you want to hear more of the 1999 World Cup. Our player of the pod this week is Phil DeFratis. And in our second innings, David can hold up the little urn again as we're going back to the 1985 Ashes. So we'll begin uh, with Philip DeFratis. Uh, he played 44 Test matches and 103 uh, one-day internationals for England, debuting at quite a, a young age, age 20, he played in Brisbane. There's a baptism of fire. Um, Pat, Phil DeFratis. Well, David would know far more about Philip de Fraser's in those early years than, than I did because he was his captain at Leicestershire. But from the outer, he always struck me as being the kind of player for whom the figures did not do himself justice. Philip de Fraser's always, to me, looked like an international cricketer. Uh, magnificent fielder for a start. Wonderful arm. Really classy-looking batsman, particularly good off his legs. And he didn't really get the kind of runs he should have got. Only 10 first-class hundreds and no uh, test match hundred. As a bowler, athletic, great stamina, moved the ball around, bowled at a lively pace. For all sorts of reasons in a 10-year international career, he never quite got there after, a, apart from a couple of series, which we'll, we'll obviously talk about at some stage. But he, for me, is one of those cricketers who could be categorised as if only. To me, he seemed to have most that was necessary for a useful, for, for a very, very good international test career. He played 21 seasons of first-class cricket. He's still playing at 39. He got the double of 10,000 first-class runs and 1,000 wickets. But there's always this nagging feeling that there was more to Philip de Freitas. Yes, you've mentioned uh, there, Pat, that David was his captain at Leicestershire, and de Freitas himself has said that um, that he actually thought he was going to be a footballer and, and kind of fell into being a cricketer. Um, he was a young man at that time, David. What was what was he like to, as, a, as a young player? Um, Gary, he was probably very similar to a million others, young and very talented players. In other words... When he first arrived, full of enthusiasm, full of energy, 
wanted to bat, wanted to bowl, bowl quite sharply to say the least. Um, lots of raw talent, which improved quite rapidly. Hence that very early England debut. Um, but always underlying it was a sort of hard to fathom character. Ambitious, yep, uh, which is always a good thing, I would say, um, because obviously without ambition, you don't push yourself to get better. Um, I mean, the, in fact, I was, I was thinking about him the other day. The, the thing, one of the things I remember is that when I was captain at Leicester and Daffy had been with us for a few years, but was getting a bit restless and wanted probably better opportunities, which he thought he might get from a bigger club, which is always uh, was true then as much as it's true now. Uh, and he was rumoured to be going to Lancashire. And I remember <laughs> driving with him. We had a benefit game to play somewhere like Cleethorpe, certainly somewhere on the East Coast. So we had probably a good sort of two, two and a half, three hour journey uh, to get there. And I took that opportunity to have a heart to heart with him and told him how much we valued him at the club, um, how much we thought he you knew, how much potential he still had, um, how much further he could go with us. And it was one of those conversations where you think, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting through to him. You know, Daffy, he's, he's, He's taking this in, you know, he's nodding at all the right times. And I drove him back again after the benefit game. And probably about two days later, he signed for Lancashire. So it says a lot for either his ambition, my lack of communication skills, my lack of inspirational skills, or the fact that just he wanted to go to a bigger club and that was that. Yeah, and he did uh, indeed go to, to Lancashire, uh, where, as we've said, he had a, a long and successful career at county level. But in the 10 tests he won, he took his wickets at 22 in the 18 he lost, the wickets came at 48. Now, you're always going to get a differential, of course, as a as a uh, key member of the bowling unit between the averages in matches won and lost. But, Mike, you've done the hard yards of, of being a, a fast-medium bowler. Does it usually make that much of a, a difference that you're world-class in the tests that you win and you're quite a way short of it in the tests that you lose? I don't know about that. You win the game because you bowl as bowl, doesn't it? I, I'm intrigued by actually. What, you know, when when Pat talked about Daffy there, I think he pretty much nailed what my thoughts of him would be. Very, very similar actually career to to Chris Lewis in that in that kind of way. People you look at and you say, "Well, goodness, he could have done this and he could have done that." And actually, you do your entire career is on your own terms, isn't it? He does really, he does really does. I, I'm intrigued by the the idea that. He kind of went round the block a bit, didn't he? You know, he went from Leicester to, to Lancashire, he went to Derby, then he went back to Leicester, a circular route, and it kind of tells you a little bit about a wanderlust looking for the, the, the key to it all, the magic, I don't know. 1,200 wickets, first-class wickets, a lot of wickets, 60 wickets a year average, I suppose, isn't it? You know, that's a, that's a pretty hefty total. Internationally, you you might say... Perhaps he, he didn't achieve what he what he might have done. You know, he had some successes, and, and as you say, there's a disparity there. Is it is it down to, you know, being on a high and being able to roll with the highs there, and not actually being able to accept the lows? I don't I don't know. Did he plow? David knows him better than me in that in those terms. That you know, was he somebody <laughs> yeah. that you could plow on regardless when things were going badly, or was he go absent without leave? I don't know. We've all known bowlers like that. Uh, that's a hard one. I mean, it's first of all, it's a long time ago. Uh, but secondly, I don't know. The, the figures, as you say, the figures tell something of a story. They don't put everything in context. When he was on song, I mean, he had that lively approach to the crease. He had good pace out of the hand. There was that little bit of movement that makes bowlers just that little bit of extra, you know, extra special. Um, and when he's not on song, it's just gun barrel straight, uh, fast, medium, a bit brisker than that. 
And I think the, I mean, there was one of the, one of the, with our homework, one of the, one of the quotes referred to, um, what was it, 1994 Brisbane Test match. Yeah. Uh, I found this quite interesting because it says, I practiced from both ends, made a decision I was going to bowl from one end, assuming I was going to take the first over. So I'm all set to bowl the first over the Ashes, as he did four years previously. Out walks Gat with Michael Atherton, who says, oh, I think Gat says the wind's changed. I think Daffy should come from this end instead. Now, to me, that's a perfectly reasonable thing for a captain to do, to assess conditions and think what's the best for my bowler and my team. But Daffy seems to take the view that shot is pre-match mental preparation to bits and that therefore he bowled a load of, well, a tripe as a result. Well, now, yeah. I mean, I'll ask the bowler. I'll say, I mean, to me, if you... Okay, you might be disappointed not to get the end you first thought of, um, but that happens every game to every bowler, every year, and has done for 150 years. And I just, I just would feel that okay, you respond by saying, "Yep, okay, fair enough." Um, try and reset. It's not as though, it's not as though someone's cut a leg off or cut an arm off. You just want to reset mentally and say, "Right, okay." And yeah. as a captain, anyway, um, I mean, I've never professed to be a bowler, so I mean, I've done my best to try and understand bowlers try to talk to them, give them their head. Most times, as a captain, I would largely allow my bowlers to do what they wanted to do within reason because they were the guys letting the ball go. But as a captain, you say, right, I think it'd be good for you to bowl this end. Whoever's bowling the other end gets that. It's fine. And you move on from there and you say, right, let's, let's just get on with it. And as a bowler, you have to accept that, I would say, and go, right, here's my end. Where's the wind? Who's batting? Where's my length? Let's just hit that length. I mean, that, that quote struck me as just a sign of some sort of fragility. I, I I agree with that. I, it's um, I mean my what I read from that actually, I read several things from that. One one is as you, as you say mm. a little bit of fragility there. I mean I I I confess that uh, in my time at Middlesex, the one thing nobody ever said to me was which end would you like with the new ball because <laughs> it was pretty obvious which end we were going to get. But um, I think I think it, I think it would have been quite nice in those circumstances if the, if if Gat. Who was it, Gat? No, who was it? Who was captain? Yeah. Oh, it was Gat, Adders, it was Adders was captain, wasn't he? No, it was Adders captain, wasn't he? Oh, no, it's quite, sorry, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, then. Yes, yeah. Um, and actually said to Daffy, what do you think? You know, rather than say yeah. you're bowling that yeah. end, if that's how if that's how it came out. Mm. Now, mm. I can read also read into that, that that's actually Daffy trying to make an excuse for it because I remember very, very well mm. that first ball um, because I've, I think in the past I've written a piece about the first ball in a Brisbane test. There's a whole piece to be written about it, if I haven't written it. I think I have. But, you know, and that was mm. the first one of the list, you know, bowls to Michael Slater. You know, Stoke, you know all about the build-up, don't you? So more than anybody to the Ashes, how you build yeah. up to Brisbane. You've all the practice games. You get yeah. to Brisbane, it's going to be different this time. And Daffy ran in and he bowled a half-tracker wide and Michael Slater didn't just hit it for four. He, he absolutely careered it for four, like Gordon at his best. Gordon mm. Greenwich at his best, it was. And and that set the tone. It really did set the tone. Just as Harmy's first delivery set the tone, just as NASA's coin toss set the tone, you know, all yeah. all those things. The first, um, first over in another test match there where the first ball dribbled through the legs and short legs for a single. You know, it was it was just oh my god, mm. Strauss getting out to Hilfenhaus <laughs> in the in the third ball of the series. You know that turned out differently, but you you get my drift. The frustrating thing about Philip De Freitas was that he showed 
what he could do in 1991 against the West Indies in England. He was 25 then. You could say he was almost at the crossroads of his international career because he'd, he'd bowled out North, Northampton on the green one in that West final in 90. And as often used to be the case, you get a trip abroad with England on the back of a performance in September, but he didn't. And he wasn't happy about it. He asked Graham Gooch why. He's told his attitude wasn't right. He flew out to um, Australia, uh, injury uh, hit side, and he bowled well then. And when he came back against the West Indies, he seemed to have thought it through. He and Derek Pringle, they went for under three and over all that series against the West Indies, making them play half forward rather than back, just in that, that area where the West Indies batsmen didn't like. No half volleys. And he was never really collared. He was accurate. He found an extra yard of pace. He seems as if he'd worked hard at moving the ball away from the right-handed bat. And everything seemed to be set fair for Philip de Fraser. And then off they go to India, 92. He didn't enjoy the tour, worried about the risk of violence. He didn't take a first-class wicket on that tour. Now, that nine months or so perhaps encapsulated the international career of Philip de Fraser's. Well, that, that India tour, you know, that... that... That gave rise to one of the great stories, actually, which is when Mickey Stewart was the was the coach, wasn't he? And after that tour, in which, as you say, Daffy didn't get any wickets, Mickey, Mickey came across Alec Bedser. And uh, Alec Bedser said, to him, what about this to Freitas then? You know, why, why, what's, what's the matter with him? Mickey said he bowls too many wicket-taking balls. And, and, and Alec said, well, well, how many wickets did he get then? And Mickey, and Mickey said, he didn't get any. <laughs> and and Alec, Alec wandered off absolutely bemused by this idea. Oh man! Let's let's just say a few words about his batting as well, because on debut he looked a, a, a real talent with the the bat, uh, taking it to the Australians. And throughout his career, he he made ten centuries and sixty seven half centuries in in uh, professional cricket. You know these are these are decent numbers, and yet. We never really saw the best of him with with the bat when he, he could certainly have been a very serviceable number eight. And there were times when you thought, well, you know, there's a there's a seven or even a six here, but it never really came through, did it? He smashed eighty eight at Adelaide in ninety five. He carted McDermott for oh, I think it was forty two in three overs, obligingly uh, uh, playing on his legs. So Daffy said, "I'll have a bit of that." Well, again, David will remember his first class hundred, first first class hundred for Leicestershire against um, Alderman, Dilly, Underwood, and Ellison. Leicestershire were forty three for seven, and he smashed a maiden hundred and hundred and six minutes. Again, that showed his capability. He was just nineteen then. I suppose what yeah, that shows, on uh, actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and the circumstances of that, you know, if if you'd have said to me he scored that hundred on the back of, you know, B of Leicester being, you know, one hundred eighty for four or something like that, I'd have said, yeah, but but forty for seven, it's that that's a well, too far a word. That's a shit all bust innings, isn't yep. it? Yeah, and and, <laughs> True. and that's not yeah. what that's you know that's not really what you're looking at. So you could you could do that with plenty of instances of that. What you were looking for. With somebody who could play well, who could bat properly, but who maybe didn't do it. But so a little bit like like Chris Lewis again, you know, the, the, somebody who you say, why, why, for goodness' sake, can't you do this? Chris Wokes would be a good model for that now, wouldn't it? You know, I would suggest he he was no lesser player than than Chris Wokes is, but maybe maybe today mm-hmm. there's there's more diligence, more encouragement to be able to do those those skills, more facility to be able to develop them. 
central contracts and all that sort of thing comes into it. So maybe it was just a product of the time, you know. Chalky well, White, there's another one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he said that he always felt he had to take wickets to stay in the sides. So that takes over your thoughts. You lose focus on the batting, which let me down a little bit. You hear this a lot from from players in the pre-central contract days. I mean, David, was there a kind of awareness that that the approach to selection, um, or certainly the perceived approach to selection, was was failing guys like uh, Daffy and others? Well, the truth is it was. Um, whether there was an awareness, I suppose by definition there wasn't, because if there was, then we wouldn't have dropped them. But you're right. The, he, he Again, he quotes 89, because he played the first test in 89. And in fact, um, <laughs> yeah, and was dropped. And that must have been me. Now, we dropped also for that same, because the first test at Headingley 89, to Fraser's Foster, Newport, Pringle, Gooch and Barnett. I was persuaded by the selectors we didn't need a proper spinner because it was Headingley, and Australia cruised past 600, um, having been put in. So it's one of my favourite favorite memories, obviously. I, I treasure it as a, you know, one of the great successes <laughs> of my career. But we dropped, it was a wholesale chop and change by Lords, the second Test match. Dilly Foster, so Foster keeps his place. Jarvis comes in, Embury Gooch. Uh, so we actually had a spinner, which I always liked to have if I could, uh, if not two. So, yeah, Daffy was the victim there. To be honest, I, I mean, they all bowled. Not very well. <laughs> I mean, it was it was probably a lottery as to who failed to make the cut for that next test match at Lords. But yes, going back to the question, it was an era where between selectors and captains, it was much easier, it seems, to make quick changes. So there wasn't that continuity, which I would fully understand that Daffy, uh, with his sort of mentality, would have appreciated, as actually 99% of players do, because there are very few players who can cope with being in and out of a team and maintain their, you know, maintain high levels of confidence. But the system at that stage, or whatever it was, the you know, the sort of the the way it seemed to work at that time, and that series was probably the worst ever for a whole multitude of reasons in terms of selection, injury. Um, you know, the revolving doors were going at warp speeds. Um, you know, we could have crossed the universe in twenty seconds the way that door was going round and round, and people being flung out left, right, and centre, and you know, take the hospital straight away with broken limbs and missing heads. It wasn't. A, it was not something I look back on with any pride. Uh, the good news. I mean, the, there's one thing actually. It, again, whatever wherever these quotes came from, you can sense the hurt, and I understand yeah. hurt. We've all been hurt at some stage, on and off the field. But you sense the hurt where he says, um, "You know, I was dropped after an eight or nine, blah blah blah." Um, uh, before that, he says, "If you had one so-so test match, you knew you were out. How you, know, you never felt settled." The gateman at Leicester used to tell me if I was picked. A Tano announcement was how I found out if I'd been dropped. Well, that's a bit. That doesn't sound right to me because the practice had been long established by Mike Brealey before that, years before that, that if people were going to be left out of a test side, the first person spoken to by captain and selectors, um, one or other, if not both, would be the man who's going to be picked or the man who's going to be dropped. So you avoided the embarrassment of having to find out, as we used to, by listening to the radio at 10 o'clock in the morning. And if you weren't there, you weren't there. And the letter would probably arrive three days later. So we, by that stage, the system was firmly in place. So I'm not quite sure why uh, either we missed him, if that was the case. Uh, well, that was meant to, that was 1889. If you, you know, if, if he was missed, then that was... You know, an unexplained circumstance, but certainly by that by that era, players were meant to be kept in the loop 
and meant to be informed. Then the other side of it is that, and again, where I found out too late, as it were, 89, that horrible series, horrible summer against Australia, there were so many people being dropped that actually if as a captain or a selector you try to keep in touch with them all uh, in the meantime to see how they were, you know, a bit of nurturing and sort of soothing of egos, um, you'd have spent more time on the phone than you would have on the field. Well, mind you, having said that, the games are finishing quite early anyway, so maybe we <laughs> did have time to, um, you know, to sort of speak to people. But it was actually one of those things, you know, how much should you communicate? And I guess, you know, a good management team would be more in touch than maybe we were. That was Dexter Stewart and myself in 89. Um, I mean, for instance, Mike Gashing was hurt so badly, it seems, having been left out partly because of injury, but then left in the wilderness a bit, no one spoke to him, that he wanted to, that he accepted the captaincy of the Rebel Tour that was due to go to South Africa. Uh, Daffy explains that he was even tempted himself, but backed out for other reasons. Um, half the side that played at Manchester in 89, or more than half the side, probably six or seven, um, were dropped after that game because it was revealed they'd all signed to go on the Rebel Tour. So that's, you know, that's a large proportion of a team tempted for whatever reason to leave the sanctuary or the supposed you know the best place which is to play for the real England side and there's probably a lot of explanations that I'm unaware of yeah I, I mean Pat from the journalist's perspective um did some of the fun go out of of journalism when the central contracts came in and instead of the kind of roulette wheel that used to spin and you'd see who was in the in the team for the next test match it became much more predictable well i've got to say um things were more satisfactory socially when england played australia in those days gary because we got a lot of days off (laughs) (laughs) it was no hardship for following england then and it was it was difficult to keep a lid on the hilarity of it all because (laughs) because you could Knowing the players as we did as well, and, we, and most of us got on very well with the players and had sympathy for them and knew how talented they were. But it was still, things just happened to England during that particular period. 94-5, the injuries just piled up. And Dave Roberts, the physio, came on as a sub-fielder one afternoon. He promptly, promptly broke his finger. Broke his finger. So if the physio yeah. gets injured acting as sub. What else? What else who's next on? The, the manager? And then we had uh, the, the the tiger moth and everything else. There was a lot of fun, really, looking back at it now. A lot of uh, memories of hilarity. And at the same time thinking, my God, we were rubbish, weren't we? When you consider how many really, really fine players we had. Um, so we'll we'll finish off this look at, at Phil De Freitas because I want to go to yourself, Mike. Um, you were a bowler. The question, could England have got more out of De Freitas's is clear they could have done. Should England have got more out of De Freitas, physically yeah. and particularly kind of psychologically? Is it a should question? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think, I mean, I'm thinking back to what we've just been talking about there, and it seems to me that we've actually been quite negative about, about Daffy's career, and it is actually a pretty mm. impressive career, and he was a pretty impressive bowler who won games and series for England. I don't think we should lose sight of that fact. So they could say that, that there were times when they did get the best out of him. And maybe maybe sometimes you have to get the best out of yourself um, too. You know, I, I, I mean, if you want exemplar, absolute exemplar, look at, 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 at Jimmy Anderson now. Jimmy, Jimmy's got the stage where he now has the ability and the, and, and, and the support to be able to say, you know, I'm not a bowler who has good days and bad days now. I just have good days, and then, and then I have very good days. I never have a bad day. 
And that's, that, that's what it's about. It's about being able to eliminate the bad days. And just maybe back then, bowlers of all sorts, not just Daffy, but all bowlers, didn't have the, the time or the support to be able to, to actually eliminate the bad rather than try and concentrate on being absolute magic at the top end, on minimising your bad days. And, and it sounds, looking at, you, at the, what you talked about earlier, Gary, about the disparity between winning sides and losing sides, it's though, it's, that's where the, the concentration perhaps should have been. What can we do to get rid of the bad days, not what can we do to improve your better days? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's fair. And I'll finish off with a quote from the uh, interview in The Cricketer where um, it really, I think, sums up a lot of what we've said here, which is uh, Phil de Freitas says, I didn't stay in the side because I bowled well. I bowled well because I stayed in the side. And that was really uh, the, the problem that central contracts largely, not completely, uh, solved. So I'm not um, quite sure what that means, Gary, actually, to be honest with you. Well, I, I read it, and I may be wrong in the interpretation there, that we bowled well because he stayed in the side is because there were, there were good days coming and the longer that faith... Uh, was shown in him by the captain and by the selectors, the longer he stayed in the side, the better he bowled. That's how I read it. And it was following on from uh, your point about the good days and, and bad days. Yeah. There will be bad days for bowlers, but you, mm-hmm. you know, Anderson took a long time to get to the position he is in. And maybe with the likes of De Freitas, um, the kind of support that allowed him to stay in the side, which meant that those bad days came much less frequently and the good days came more was, can I, uh, can I, can I add some, yeah. sorry yeah please do can I say, which is first first of all mike was absolutely right to say um you know the, the danger is looking at the downside too often and he's absolutely right to say that you know he was a very talented cricketer who had some notable highs and some notable successes and in fact i think now the mature daffy who's been coaching for, for some years now you know is a very different animal to the one who was Thrust onto that scene early, as we said right at the start of this piece. Thrust onto the scene early, not knowing what to do, roomed with Botham, which, of course, is the ultimate challenge of anyone's career. That's broken many a, a young man, I can tell you that. Um, and the first night in Brisbane that Daffy found out he was rooming with Beefy, Beefy said, right, we're going out. Um, and that's a big test, I can tell you, from experience. I've, I've failed that test many a time. Now... The vulnerability that has come through in some of these quotes and sort of some of these attitudes, I think, is just part of his character. I think there was, you know, you're always seeking uh, sort of approval. You're always looking for someone to pat you on the back. Um, and the, the likes of Jimmy Anderson, very good example, because he's long way, he's a long way past looking for approval. He knows what he's doing. He does his own thing. And that is on the back of, as you say, a very different system, which means you don't just play a test match to go back to your county weary and bowl badly or bat badly whatever it might be and come back for the next test match uh, you know the new system the modern system which is now 20 years old plus whatever it is you know, it gives people like Anderson a chance to be themselves and work on their game in the way that England players should so Daffy was vulnerable I think at the core of it and when that vulnerability came through and he didn't bowl well for whatever reason he sort of fits into the same sort of category as one or two other very very talented players and you can say I mean, for instance, on the batting side, the Hicks and the Rampricashes of this world, who had undeniably huge talents. But that's something somewhere inside which you can never get to. You can never get a screwdriver inside the brain and go, and it's going to tweak this little dial five degrees to the right. That'll fix that. You know, the things that somehow 
prevents you fulfilling that talent at the ultimate level are the things that will remain very much the human element of the game. And I think that's where Daffy fits in. Well, I think that's a, a nice point at which to wrap up this uh, discussion of uh, Phil De Freitas. And let's just underline that fact that he, in his career, he took 1,248 first-class wickets and another 539 List A wickets for all of the, the talent that didn't come through. Plenty of it did. Uh, so there is Phil De Freitas. So in the second part of our show this week, we're looking at the 1985 Ashes. Now, um, David, you had a couple of big guns back in the fold, didn't you? Gooch and, and both of them were, were back. And what kind of impact did that have on uh, the England squad, never mind the team? Well, there is a very simple rule that is very good players tend to improve a side. And you know, Graham was one of the, you know, the finest openers we've had. Um, you know, Graham's career, of course, went upwards probably after 85. Um, you know, his professionalism increased, his output increased. Um, he set very high standards for himself after a sort of what you might call a, a moderate start, prior, way, you know, way before 85, 10 years, almost 10 years before 85. But Graham, high quality. Beefy, I mean, you don't, <laughs> you don't need me to tell you, but Beefy and the Ashes is like a massive conflagration. Um, yeah, he absolutely adored being part of the Ashes. He absolutely adored trying to win Ashes series. Um, in 85, he was a mighty potent force. Um, he actually used that series to bowl quickly. Um, and in fact, it, it just for him, he, he, he somehow got some, got some extra energy to bowl quicker than he had done before and quicker than he ever would do again. We used him, I used him not so much as the beefy of, say, 1980-ish, where he bowled a lot of overs, uh, swung the ball a lot, kept going, kept going, kept going. Um, in the 85 version, it was shorter bursts, quicker bursts, um, and that was that. Um, we had you know, one or two changes through the summer of 85. By the time we got Richard Ellison into the side, we had a really good swing bowler um, who actually made such a difference towards the end. But for Beefy, it was just the fun of playing playing against Australia. And for the rest of the team, you always have sort of the good Beefy and the slightly bad Beefy, which is the good Beefy is the one with um, Tigger-like confidence and bounceability where, and things working well and getting runs and getting wickets and catching pigeons that slip. And bad Beefy is the same attitude, but things not going quite so well for you. Uh, and then you've got a bit of a problem because he doesn't believe it's not going well, but it is not going well. Uh, and that was that was the beefy I had probably in the Caribbean a few months later. So during 85, he was a big asset, simple as that. And when you got two guys like that and everything else, you know, everything else kind of fell into place in 85. Uh, whereas at other times, things had a habit of falling out of place. Yeah, I mean, you you set some store in a in an interview uh, you had with Richie Benno on a on a catch that you took mm -hmm. yourself in the preceding Texaco Trophy. I mean, it's a decent mm. catch, but um, it 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 doesn't look as you said yourself. I think that you would take it sort of ten times out of eleven. So why did that catch sort of? Why was that the trigger that sort of set you off personally on a on an outstanding series? Um, okay, yeah, that's a good one. The Texaco Trophy games. I had two, I think, single-figure scores, and it was a time where those outside the camp were starting to suggest that was you know, asked the question: Was I the man to captain England in the Ashes when my form seemed to be at a rather low ebb? 
And I've always had this sort of, well, it's a, it's a pretty firm belief. Things like runs and catches, things you do well lead to other things you do well. In other words, so what happened at Lords was this. We had, you know, it was, it was in terms of you know, this, this catch, which is one of those skiers that you think, oh, God, you got far too much time to think about it. Ended up in the hand safely. And I thought, oh, great, that's, you know, this is going to be a good day. And then I had one of those innings where you basically throw caution to the winds, have a crack at everything, let instinct do its job. And if it goes your way, you end up with runs. And I had sort of I ended up with 100 at Lords in the final Texaco Trophy game. Uh, so in the course of that one day, uh, all my flagging self-belief came back in to where it should be. And that's the sort of thing which, again, very hard to explain to anyone who hasn't really been in that situation. But that's the sort of thing that gives you the fillip you need to approach your next game, your next day, whatever it might be, with a certain spring in your step. Whereas previously, you've had that sort of reticence that comes from being not sure about your own levels of confidence and ability. So that that was a turning point. And yes, it, it was. You know, I, I took a lot of comfort and strength from that one moment and from the 100 Lords. I mean, the Lords... The Lord's 100 was a, it was a chancy affair. I've, I've got to admit that. Um, there was one on the boundary, which you know, a looping catch to deep square leg, which just had the legs in it by about a yard or so to go over the boundary for six. You know, another yard short, it'd have been well short of the 100 and it could have been a very different story. But it did set me up. It's as simple as that. It set me up for the, for the ashes. It reassured people uh, in the camp and outside the camp um, that actually the, the talent was still there and that we still had a chance of things going well so it's yeah it is turning points like that that actually can make or break a summer yes and uh, the first test australia win the toss bat and make 331 so that's a, a kind of decent start for them but we then get a, a, a turning point uh, of the match and indeed a, a kind of motif that runs through the series which is the strength of england's batting and it's led by uh, a man that I think some of us thought was uh, was more of a, a decent county pro than a kind of uh, uh, leading test match opener. And that's Tim Robinson, uh, who was fantastic throughout the series. I mean, Pat, is that is that damning with faint praise that he was more of a an excellent county opener before he showed that he could uh, score 175 in an Ashes test? Well, he'd had a very good tour of India under yeah. David Gower. He got the nod ahead of yep. Chris Broad, his opening partner at Nottinghamshire. Be wrong to say they were bosom buddies um, during that particular time. And uh, Broad was not impressed, having grafted long and hard against the tremendous West Indies bowling attack in the summer of seven, uh, '84. Robinson got the nod, played very well indeed. And that hundred, I remember, it was very un-Robinson-like uh, rate of scoring. He got that 175 off just 271 balls. And for a time, until he was found out a year later in the Caribbean, he looked a very, very good uh, opening partner to, to Graham Gooch. I remember that innings, Robinson, shrewd kind of a cove. Uh, he put the helmet on at the non-striker's end when Ian Botham came in, smashed 60 or 50-odd balls, and his straight driving was fantastic. And Robinson kept his helmet on when he was non-striker. <laughs> Very wise. And um, the match was also a triumph for Andrew Hilditch, who um, scored a, a ton and then made 80. But he was sorted out in, in later matches by this uh, vulnerability to the hook shot. I mean, Mike, how do you how do you kind of get that that knowledge as a bowler where you think, oh, we, we've got a ball here and he's not going to be able to deal with it? We mean by the bouncer to Hilditch? 
Yeah. Well, uh, bowling bouncers was not something that was in my in my armory. I didn't use that. Well, I, it's true. It's true. This. Trust day, me, you but, might you might have bought one at him. Well, hang on a minute. What what I, what used to happen was um, I I didn't bowl bouncers. I didn't have a very good bouncer, and and it used to get hit. So and Brearley used to get on at me for being being more aggressive, more aggressive. You've got to bowl bouncer to people. So I only bowl bouncers <laughs> to people I knew would duck under them. And I used to I used to tell them. So people like Dennis Amis or Pasty Harris or people like that are not. And I used to say to them, I've got to bowl you a bouncer, third ball sacker. All right, is that okay? He said, yeah, don't worry. And I'd bowl him a bouncer and, uh, and he'd duck under it, go through the brilliant, really thought I was being aggressive and everybody was a winner. He didn't go for runs. So that was my attitude to bouncers. So I can tell you that Hildish would not got a single bouncer from me. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't, I don't think it took, uh, you didn't have to be brain of Britain, did you, to see that Alan Hildish went for the hook willy-nilly and, and, uh, uh, and, and hooked up. You know, you only have to see photographs of him to see how he hooked. He didn't hook from high to low, that's for sure. And I don't think people like Beefy, David, needed any encouragement to bowl bouncers, did he? Beefy in many a team meeting in all parts of the world said, leave him to me, I'll bounce him out. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And when the, the infamous one was uh, Yashpal Sharma in India, who probably got about 140, um, hooking Beefy into the stands regularly at Madras, I think it was. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And I think, but Hildish was definitely a, a happy hooker who, you know, looked, <laughs> you know, couldn't resist it. And most of the time it would end up in someone's hands, except at Headingley. Yeah, these days, these days, there's analysts who, you know, say bowl left arm spin to Kevin Peterson and they have the matchups and everything else. But did you learn um, during, you know, the 180 odd runs you scored in that first test at, at Headingley? Did you learn, David, that that was his weakness or was it something that sort of arose more by well, chance? No, you spot it because, I mean, as, as Mike says, the the method, I mean, you, you look at the good hookers and pullers in history and they would back themselves. Yes, they'd get out at some stage, no doubt, because it is a very hard shot to be in control of all the time. Um, and inevitably, for many people, it goes up rather than flat. But the good ones back themselves because they got a lot of runs and were prepared to take the risk. You know, it's the risk-reward factor. Uh, for someone like Hilditch, it was tempting to keep bouncing him because he always felt it looked as though he hadn't got it under control. Uh, heading into that particular year, it, it did end up at the boundary uh, far too often. But at the same time, you're also trying to get people out by orthodox methods. So, I mean, the bouncer has always been you know, something to just sort of change a batsman's mindset, not necessarily a, a way of getting him out. It's more a question of where you position him on the crease and where you bolt him next. So if you've peppered him with, with bouncers, then the, you know, the absolute apogee is the gentle swinger nipping away from roundabout off stump just outside and nicking it to keeper or slip, because that's what you're actually trying to do. Um, and that didn't work either in that particular test match. But as the series went on, he became less and less productive. Yes. You see, well, you, see you mentioned you mentioned um, an analysts there, and 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 I think one of the things you know, and also you know, did you know about this? Well, we, you see, back then bowlers did have to think a little bit for mm. themselves, uh, and there's a lot of spoon yeah. fed now. I'll give you an example of that of, of hooking. Actually, uh, my recollection, I think it was the 2006. Ashes in Melbourne, and mysteriously, the England bowling plans on a piece of paper got dropped on the floor between getting them printed out in the office somewhere, and, the, and somebody found these, and, and they went online or whatever back then. They got published anyway, and 
they had on them for Andrew Simons and one of the things underlined bouncer essential <laughs> and for every one of Andrew Simons 160 odd runs that he scored there was a man out on the hook and he didn't hook once <laughs> yes. in 160 so you'd have thought that somewhere along the line somebody might have thought well maybe this isn't going to happen so but it didn't and that's what I mean by you know well Paralysis by analysis, they call it, don't they? I suppose. Um, yeah. We, you, you, you underthink. So, of course, you could see Hilditch. You only had to look at, say, photographs of him hooking. You, you know, players. You, if you're a bowler back then, you went through a process. You, 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 if you saw a batsman you didn't know, we hadn't seen before, you looked at him from the moment he left the dressing room. You, you'd see. First of all, you say, is he right-handed or left-handed? It sounds a basic thing, but you do kind of. Notice these things. How does he hold the bat? How does he carry himself onto the field? Is he? Does he look confident? Is he diffident? Is he short? Is he tall? Does he hold the bat high in the handle? Does he hold it low? Has he got split hands? All these things, what guards he take? You look at these things and you make a judgment on that basis. That's, that's analysis. That's data analysis, if you like, too, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. Uh, I just want to ask you, David, if you could take us into the dressing room as England are chasing uh, 123, but the chase is not going entirely to plan. What, was there ever any sense that, uh, oh dear, you know, we're, we're not going to do this? Um, honest answer, can't remember. <laughs> the 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 trick I mean, the trick of that is I mean, we've seen over the years many occasions from all sorts of teams and actually more often it's Australia crumbling with small targets. Um, many is the time where just that sort of curious and slightly illogical thought creeps into a side's collective mind. You know, what if this goes wrong? You know, if you've got 120 yards to chase, you do it for, for no wickets down. It's lovely. Uh, if you lose two or three quickly, then. You always say this, so the classic phrase is, right, someone has to take responsibility. And you always say that actually as a caption, you say that right at the start, none for none, right. Everyone take responsibility and we'll be fine. Um, yes, everyone try and be the hero. Everyone try and win the game. Lose a couple, doesn't matter. As I say, I don't recall any undue panic, but it does, you know, inevitably, you do sort of look at the wicket going down, the next wicket going down, thinking, what happens if? But you just rely on having the right people in the right place to... Get you through. And they did get England through, so they went 1-0 up after the first test at Headingley. And then there's almost a kind of reflection of the Headingley test, only in, obviously in reverse, at, at Lords. I mean, Pat, mm. um, it's Border and Ritchie who uh, make the big runs at Lords. And England's batting for one of the rare times in this series is, is much less effective. Alan Border held that Australian side together, didn't he, for most of that series until he ran out of steam. Craig Ritchie, I thought, was a really talented player. He's one of those players, I feel, that should have done himself more justice than he did. Um, he had a relaxed attitude towards uh, the new fitness <laughs> regime. Rather roly-poly figure, soulmate of Ian Botham. But, God, he's a good player to watch, wasn't he? Uh, Dutchie Hollander, Bob Holland, the leg spin. He came in 5 for 68. And they were in trouble, Australia. They needed 127 to win. And there were 65 for five. But Border, again, he anchored it and uh, and he got there. But Border, 196 he got. I remember things used to happen to Mike Gatton, didn't they, at times? And don't you remember, <laughs> David, I think Border was, was in the 80s. Gat caught him, didn't he, at short leg. And then as he celebrated, yep. he didn't hang on to the ball long enough. And he dropped it. Is that oh, right? yes. 
can't remember the exact figure, but yeah, it was it was roughly a hundred hundred runs difference. Um, I mean, Mike was <laughs> he's had a couple of those, hasn't he? Over yes. the years, bless him. Yeah. Um, but that one, I mean, the, the one in India was even worse on Gucci's tour. Yes, uh, ninety two, ninety three. This one, he did did all everything right, which was all up up to a point, which was stay down. Border flicks it towards him at short leg, goes straight into his hands, which is great. And then as he tried to flick it up or tried to throw it up, it slipped out. So by the laws of the game, not out. Didn't have control of the further disposal of the ball. Um, so, OK, we say bad luck, mate. Uh, carry on. We'll get him, we'll get him at some stage. Uh, but we didn't. Not for another 100 runs personally to AB. So that, you could say, made a you know, When you look at the, uh, you know, the fourth innings of the game and the way they crawled across the line, you could argue, well... But for that moment, we might actually have won that game. Yep. Border scored 43% of Australia's runs in that test. Mm. Well, he was outstanding. AB was, I mean, apart from just being in simple terms of bloody good player, that was one of his best series where he played not, a, not entirely a lone hand, but you know, he was the man that very obviously, if you got him out, you felt you'd you know, done 50% of the work of bowling Australia out, just simply because of his productivity and his talent in that particular series. So... Yeah, when you drop him, you know, 80 would have been quite a good result for us. <laughs> you know, think, OK, AB out for 80, we'll take that. As I say, especially if you look at the scores for the rest of the game. He got 87 yeah. at the time, so... He, oh, right, yeah. And he got 196. He was, he was extraordinary that year, wasn't he? Because he was holding Australia together. I, I played against them right at the start at uh, Arundel, you know, and I think yeah. he'd already, already come off the back of... Some big runs in uh, in the counties. I'm pretty sure. At least he mm. was on a run of a run of form there, which is just you know indicative of how it was going to go. He was hugely instrumental in the revival of Australian cricket because he literally did hold hold them together, didn't he? Absolutely. I mean, his his ability, his sheer cussedness, doggedness, um, and against all sorts. You know, against the West Indies, he's one of the few players in that era to make more than 100, several hundreds against the West Indies. So he was brave, he was resolute, infamously batting with you know, that broken finger at Manchester. I forget which year that was now. And, you know, he was never going to give up. He, he was one of these characters where, you know, we've already talked about vulnerability in this edition. He was not a man to show vulnerability or admit to vulnerability. Uh, and so he was very much the linchpin. Uh, I mean, I think captaincy... I mean, we know the sort of the comparison between 85 and 89. 85, you know, as, as we would walk off the field with AB with yet another 100, you know, we would be talking to him amicably and sort of, you know, both and myself, you know, we had a very good relationship with AB uh, and he was a very relaxed sort of character at those times and obviously very determined when he had the bat in his hand and was focused on that. So we had a, you know, we, we kind of enjoyed the whole thing. Whereas in 89, he was a very different character deliberately so and famously basically spoke to no one on certainly not in our team or me and certainly not, and not very much to his own teammates while he went about righting the wrongs of 85 and having a much better and much more successful series in 89 it was dramatic absolutely dramatic the way he changed and dramatic the way the results changed but in 85 he was just sticking to his guns as the as the premier batsman as i understand it david it was ian chapel that got into him after 85 he was yeah. hacked off yeah. by seeing Border being. He was really gracious. I remember on the balcony alongside yeah. you at the Oval when you're hanging on, brandishing that tiny little urn, which was, yeah, was a lot bigger. He didn't have much and, choice. And, and <laughs> Border <laughs> smiling away, and we all thought, "God, what a great guy!" 
But Chappelle was not mm. impressed, and he told he said to him, "Toughen up off the field as well as on." So yeah. the rest is yeah. hysteria. <laughs> Indeed. Did you, did, you, did you have did you have plans as a as a attack to deal with uh, Border because? I always thought with Border that if you were the tiniest bit overpitched, he would drive you, and then the tiniest bit short, and he would cut and pull. He's one of those mm. batsmen where you just didn't seem to have anywhere to bowl to him because whichever question was asked, he had the answer. Uh, is that a case of of then just sort of aiming at the top of off stump, or occasionally try and rough them up with bouncers, or going nose and toes, or, or a batsman like that so few and far between that you just have to grit your teeth and wait. Uh, all of the above. I mean, you, <laughs> you know, we would have our team meetings, we would have our discussions, um, we would sort of come up with, you know, both would said, I'll get him, um, but didn't. I mean, the, the, the time in that series where we actually did get to him was when Richard Ellison came in towards the end of the series and bowled absolutely beautifully. And because of Borders, as you say, I mean, he, he, he had very little margin for error. I mean, people like Border, Viv Richards... You can go through the list of people who are mighty hard to bowl at. And the simple truth is, if, you know, if someone is that good, I mean, that is, that is the whole point of being that good. Um, you know, you've worked out your margins for error and you've reduced them to the bare minimum. Um, and, you know, you rather hope to get at the other mere mortals at the other end. So whichever way you can, I mean, the, I mean, AB was also he was good at playing pace. He was good at playing spin. So how do you, what do you do? You say, OK, well, we'll... We will try and do this. We'll try and do that. If that doesn't work, we'll try this. You know, and during the day, obviously, whatever you say, I mean, I always love this whole thing about team meetings before a game because inevitably you have a team meeting where you bowl the opposition out twice for 30 and make 600 yourself. Within 10 minutes of starting any game, you realise that plans might have to change. And that's what you do. As a captain, you're constantly evaluating in the field. And someone like Border comes in, you, you know, depending time of day situation you know you temper your response accordingly you might put men around the bat you know with a spinner you might and once they get going there is that sort of inevitability that once they're set whatever you try might not work and just a bit of patience a bit of stifling of the runs um, you know you, you change constantly every 5 10 15 20 30 minutes you're changing plans See, Alan, Alan Border to me right there was a comparison I have used in the, in the past between him and Alistair Cook they're very, very similar MO, except there's one essential difference, right? They both, they both had a very limited, in the way they played, a very, very limited range of shots. So Al- Alistair Cook, he cut, he had a pokey little thing through extra cover, he played off his legs and he pulled, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and that one yeah. off, his, off his hip. That was, that was all he had. Now, with Alistair Cook, that was all he actually had, but he had all he needed to do what he did. Alan Border was similar except except in the huge difference that he had all the shots in the game, but he rationalised it down to exactly those same shots. And, and, and he cut, and he poked it through extra cover, and he played off his legs, and he pulled. And that's all he needed. It, it was fantastic the way that he managed to understand his game to that extent to say, I could do all these different things, but I'm not going to do them because I don't need them to score 11,000 test runs. Yes, it's uh, mm. the, the the will and the the force of personality backing up that will was was strong, and even if it uh, it took another four years for us to see the the, the full blossoming of it, it was uh, it was all there. Um, Mike, I want to ask you about something that does take us a little back, and 
this is an example, the so-called Lord's Curse, where England couldn't win at Lord's. Now, you've played there many, many times. Was it just one of those things, or was there a a kind of rational explanation for this long, long trot now stopped, where, where England just couldn't get a win there? Well, there used to be, there were several theories about this, weren't there? There was the the big thing about, you know, people being inspired by playing at the home of cricket and all the rest of it. And certainly there was a time where I felt that that was trying to over-intellectualise it. And actually, it seemed to come, Lord's Test was always the second test of a series, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's, as such, it came at a period in a tour for the touring team where they'd been together a little while, they played some counties, they played the first test match, they probably had another game after the first test match, and they come to Lords and they're actually learning about playing in England, playing in the conditions, they're they're up to fitness, they're they're adapted to the conditions, and by the time they get to Lords, they're at a, probably at their almost at the peak of what they're going to be as a team. And I think that has as much to do with it as as actually it being, you know, this magical place, Lords, where you know, where people have ambitions to play all their life and the rest of it. Um, now that has changed a bit, of course, because now Lords play the first test match and they don't have the warm up games, etc., etc., etc. But back then, I'm pretty sure that that was that was a pertinent reason. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a, a good answer. So it's it's one one series level. It's a six test series. I must remember that there were a few six test series back then, and in go to Trent Bridge. Now, uh, Pat, uh, England's skipper makes 166 there, but um, England collapsed, but it's much easier to collapse from 416 for four to 456 than it is to collapse from 116 for four to 156. So England are in a strong position. Pat, what's your recollection of, uh, of the skipper's 166? Oh, beautiful innings. It was classic gown. It was, it was just lovely to see, to be honest, because many of our admirers like myself were concerned for him in India when he averaged just 27 and uh, people were worrying about had he lost his mojo and uh, any, honestly, sparing his blushes, any lover of the game <laughs> would be delighted that David Gow was back back in form. 300s in that series, glittering, glittering series for him. He got over 700 runs, for heaven's sake. Made It, it was stick a rhubarb time with David Gow and uh, it was lovely to watch. My abiding memory of that test match, slow pitch, draw written all over it. Again, Greg Ritchie, big hundred. My abiding memory of that is a piece of nonsense involving Ian Botham and Alan Whitehead, which was distorted by <laughs> TV cameras. Uh, Whitehead, uh, I think it was about the only English umpire that Botham never really got on with. Botham didn't bowl many no balls. There was a spat about interpretation of a no ball. And also Greg Ritchie admitted he, he, he didn't he didn't nick it when Botham had him plumb LBW and uh, Botham got annoyed. Uh, but Botham was, Beefy was relying on David as captain to deal with Whitehead because they didn't get on and it led to a foreshortening on the TV cameras, make it look as if Botham was um, spewing at umpire Whitehead when he was leaving it to David to sort out. And the ramifications were absolute nonsense. It was raised in the House of Commons and Botham was lambasted (laughs) for, quote, petulance and histrionic behaviour. Now, you never see that in the House of Commons, do you? (laughs) And six weeks later, Botham (laughs) uh, was summoned to Lords, reprimanded, warned about his future conduct. David got dragged into it. Greg Ritchie said he was amazed at the overreaction. He offered to speak on Beefy's behalf, but the, the the Australian board refused him to do that. It was just rubbish, and and I thought it reflected badly on 
my profession that such a lot was made out of it. I, I had a I had a phone call, funnily enough, just before we, we, we started this programme from Paul Allen, who was playing in that game. And uh, and I said to him, I said, we're going to do this, uh, this thing about the uh, about the 85 series. And I said, what do you remember about Trent Bridge? He said it was flat. He said, I remember that. Uh, and then he, he he talked about uh, about that about beefy and uh, uh, because there was a catch it was it was a result of a catch wasn't it a third man yeah. catch and he chopped one down to third man which was caught and White had called no ball and beefy took off on one about it and said oh, I don't bowl no balls what are they I don't even know what they are and uh, and it all kicked off because <laughs> you, you know, I never, never bowl no three. ball I mean you're right yeah it was Phil Edmonds dived took a brilliant catch actually at third man yeah. And it was because, and, he, and you're absolutely right. I mean, without taking anything away from my absolute brilliance with the bat, um, it was a very flat pitch. It was an absolutely <laughs> flat deck and it was lovely to bat on. And so Beefy, as I said earlier, he, he was trying to hear, he was, he, this was quick Beefy in those days. So he bounced it short. Greg Ritchie paddled it down to third man up in the air there. Edmonds takes a few steps, dives, comes up clutching the ball. And then we see Whitehead with his arm to the side, signalling no ball. So Beefy goes into some sort of warp speed overdrive um, rant. So I say to him, just leave this to me. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> you just get back to it. We'll get him next ball. You know, just keep trying. Sent Beefy away. Had a word with Alan. But of course, you're right. The, so the past history between the two of them meant that two things happened. One is Beefy was not going to give in and he certainly was going to speak to Whitehead. Whitehead wasn't going to let it pass either, which is why he then subsequently reported it, um, which is why we had to go through this sham of a hearing and all the rest of it whereas I mean my intention at the time had been simply just to sort of simmer down here simmer down all the emotions let Beefy get on the job of bowling let Alan Whitehead get on the job of umpiring and the rest of us get on the job of trying to you know, get someone out um, but yes you're right it was but you're both right it was extraordinary how suddenly this escalated into some sort of major incident and maybe it was that sort of game. It's it's quite funny watching it because both of them at the time was affecting this kind of long mullet of bleach blonde hair. And you can see it all waving out <laughs> as he gets angrier and angrier. Um, you know, David, you've been on the wrong end of this kind of moralistic view of, of England players that somehow they have to not just play cricket, but embody the, the very best of what it is to be sort of English in a kind of post-war stiff upper lip manner. Um, we, we, I mean, Adderton got it as well. And uh, sorry, have you, have you confused me with someone else? Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> but were, were you, were you as, as players kind of aware of it? Did you get briefings about it? Where the noise is off to tell players to, you know, sort of uh, not swear in front of the servants and all of this kind of stuff? <laughs> Briefing briefings weren't invented for another twenty years. <laughs> yes. I mean, we're. One, actually, in all seriousness, one of the nice things about playing in that era, even captioning in that era, is that it was largely in our hands what we did. I mean, there was a, you know, both on and off the field. Obviously, you, you still have all the, the right things in place, like a you know, desire for personal success, team success. When you've got an Ashes series, you want to beat Australia, come what may. Um, we had, if you can imagine, you know, the major characters of that era, you know, Botham, Lamb, partly me. You know, there was a certain admission that it was quite fun to be around in those days. Uh, so we made our own agenda in sometimes a very good way, sometimes in a rather less than professional way. And But there were certainly no briefings. There was certainly no, you must do this at all times. I mean, my instinct on, just on that one occasion was all I need to do is just get people to calm down. You know, that was, that was my captain's responsibility at that moment, was to keep Beefy running in 
still trying to get Greg Ritchie out without sort of distracting him. Get Alan Whitehead to just forget about it and we'll get on with the game. And literally we get on with the game. That's, that's all I had to try and do. And that's what any good captain, I would say, would want to try and do in those circumstances. You don't want to sort of pour oil onto the flames. You, know, you just want to just say, right, let's just calm down and get on with the game. At least that, that was my view. So in terms of you know, public perceptions, briefings... I mean, there was no, there's no such thing in those days. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me immensely nowadays is that everyone is almost too brief. I mean, every post-match interview mm. is dull as ditch water because of the briefing, which you know, basically is a pre-prepared script that has now been going for 20 years without changing. And it's just, yeah. it's, it takes away the, you know, I mean, Pat was saying earlier, you know, it's quite fun to be around in those days, but it was. I mean, I contributed unwittingly sometimes to some of those press conferences with things that you know, a briefing would say, oh, you can't say that. Uh, you know, which, which year was it? I, we got to Birmingham, and the I forget. There was, it just, there was apart from things like going to the theatre at the end of press conferences rather early. Yeah, why, why did you why did you bowl um, Neil Foster from the from the wrong end? So, uh, still oh, I'm told glad me. you asked that. I'm very glad you asked that. What time? What time is the show? Oh, my taxi comes in two minutes. Um, <laughs> but there was the one at Birmingham where the press conference before the game on the Wednesday afternoon, and I've completely forgotten which year it was. The question was. <laughs> Why aren't you playing two spinners? And the answer was from the England captain, i.e. me, because we've only got one here. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it, and I, I was always prepared to have, have that bit of fun. You know, if, if I thought it was a stupid question, I would give it a stupid answer. Whereas nowadays, if, whatever the question, good, bad or indifferent, you have to give it some sort of pre-prepared corporate speak, which basically negates any question in the world. Absolutely, it, it changed. It changed with it, literally with media management. When media management started, the the fun went out of relationships. Actually, yeah, you know, because yeah. it just did. It just disappeared overnight. Once uh, once you start getting media managers and uh, formalised press conferences, you know, David, you know, you you'd have done many press conferences where you just you just sit around, don't you, uh, and chew the fat for yeah. ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and and have a bit of fun, actually. And and people usually got a line. You, <laughs> yeah. you know, you. But that was the object of the exercise. Everyone went away a winner. You said what you wanted to say. Yeah. And uh, and people got the line. What was it like, Pat, yeah. in the in the amongst the press pack? Because there were still some who who were old school and would be tutting about the earrings and the yep. stubble and the haircuts. Then others who could see perhaps on the horizon that that cricket needed, as all sports needed to do, to become part of of entertainment as well, and were not just competing with football, but competing with Hollywood and stuff like that. It was still probably a way off in '85, but it was coming. Well, no, he was there, courtesy of Tim Hudson. He was getting beefy and Paul Allett wearing mm. those ridiculous striped blazers and getting them streaking their hair blonde. And Tim Hudson was describing both of them as a cross between Winston Churchill and uh, Horatio <laughs> Nelson. It was nonsense, but it was, it was harm, harmless nonsense for us. Speaking as a reporter, it was much more fun covering England in the 80s and the 90s when they were erratic, full of really, really fine players, some great players, than when they became... Um, good and uh, capable and uh, difficult to beat in, in recent Corporate. decades. But no, Corporate. any cricket reporter <laughs> around will tell you it's much more fun in the 80s and the yeah. 90s. Um, it was falsified to a certain extent by the obsession with Ian Botham, depending on which 
paper he was writing for at the time. So the knives were out from various other newspapers trying to undermine both of them. And I think that was at the root of the Alan Whitehead, Trent Bridge nonsense. That was a circulation war at work. So unwittingly, Ian Botham contributed <laughs> to some animus at times, and there were a few spats. But I can only speak personally and tell you that it was a lot of fun. And most of my favourite stories <laughs> for covering England emanate from that period. Yeah. He'd just yeah. come back from the drug span, hadn't he? Drugs ban was 86. Was it? No, that was 86. You're right. No. Yeah, that was, that was... Who writes your scripts when he came back at the Oval? 84-5, he took the winter off. And uh, I remember he went off walking with Kath in the, uh, in the Lake yeah. District, Easter. And that's where the John the Groats Land's End mm. uh, walk uh... idea came from. And then he yeah, went out yeah. to Barbados with Somerset and batted on very, very good pitches. And as a result, after a fortnight out there, fully rested, he came back in great batting, Nick. And that was his greatest yeah. summer as a batsman because he hit the yeah. record number of sixes, 80 sixes in the first class season. I don't think he's ever batted right. better over a whole summer mm. than in 85. I think I went to, to watch him play, I think I'm pretty sure it would have been that year, uh, in, a, in a Sunday league game at Wellingborough. Yep. I think it might even have been a game that eventually got rained off. But it was a remarkable innings he played there against Sarfraz on a green top. And like Sarfraz had eight overs then. And I can remember his innings because I remember describing it as it was like a picket fence, the start of his innings. It went one, 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 one. And then he hit 11 sixes. And he hit them over the trees straight at Wellingborough. And that's big hits. He just hit Sarfraz for six after six after six. Michael, was, I'll, I'll raise your Wellingborough with Edgbaston for Somerset against Warwickshire when he hit 13 sixes in the championship match. He got 94 of the first 100 in boundaries. And Dennis Amos, Norman Gifford, David Brown, who was manager at the time, good judges, I'm sure you'll agree, said it's one of the most remarkable innings they've ever seen. And he hit, he hit Adrian Pearson, the off-spinner, into Cannon Hill Park, across the road, <laughs> outside one, of Edgbaston, over... Uh, straight over the pavilion. Remarkable shots. What is it that makes people, makes makes batsmen have a year like that? Mm. To be honest, I was thinking about this um, uh, yesterday when, when we saw about that, that stat that you mentioned there. And I go back to, I think it was 64, 63 or 64, John Edrich, yep. one year, suddenly hit 60s galore for no reason. The year he got 300 in a, in a headingly. He hit six after six after six That's for right. no reason. Never did it again. Uh, why? What? What? You, you never got that urge, did you, Stowe? Eh? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I kind of lost my. If, I mean, I, I did hit the odd six here and there. But one of the ironies I've always looked at myself and worried, not worried about, but sort of observed, is that the, if ever I thought it's about time I hit a six here, all the shape, all the timing, all the you know, everything disappeared. Yeah. And it, you know, if it happened, it happened. But if it, if I was going to hit a six, it would normally happen naturally, and everything was still in place, the timing and the rest. I remember hitting, you know, Greg Chapel for six at the MCG one year, which is as we remember, and this is no, you know, no, no ropes, no cushions. This was the whole ground. And I just hit him for six. I thought, I thought. Uh, so I knew something. I said, "How the, did I do that?" <laughs> I sort of looked at my bat and looked at myself and thought, "Where did that come from?" Um, but it just happened. And that's the best way. I mean, unlike Beefy, who could set his stall out and had the strength and the bat and the whole thing and the, you know, the mighty power that would see that ball travel a long way, I'd sort of tended to sort of try and, if I was playing sensibly, as it were, they happened if they happened, if they didn't, it didn't matter. What weight bat did you use? Um, 
if you put it on the scales, £2.10, but that was a £2.08 with two extra grips, so an ounce for every grip. Right, it's, yeah. Which yeah, okay. changed the balance yeah. very nicely for me. And I, I didn't like to have sort of, as it were, a grip a small handle. So the um, it, it worked for me. That, 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 that sort of, eventually, that's how I configured all my bats for the last probably, I don't know, 10 yeah. years or so. Yeah. Well, well, we'll move, if I may, to the fourth test at Old Trafford. And it was a pretty good summer for four England uh, batsmen who all averaged over 50. But top of the averages was Mike Gatting. And that was partly uh, the result of his 160 at Old Trafford, which secured another uh, draw here. Gatting was, he took a while to get started in his uh, test career, but he was he was excellent in this summer, uh, wasn't he, David? Yeah, and that all goes back to the winter. Um, that India tour, mm. which is, uh, you know, it's an hour and a half in itself, if you just skim the surface with all sorts of things going on. But the 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 India tour gave Gat the chance, I mean, if, dare I say I gave Gat the chance in the sense that we made him vice-captain, we gave him a position of responsibility in the team and in the batting order, and he'd played mighty well through India, um, you know, with the highlight being his double hundred in Madras. So he came back from India with everything he needed, runs in the bank, confidence, self-esteem, uh, everything was in place for him. And I actually tell him, and I have to say, I take some pride in that because I mean, I'd known Mike from the early days of Young England tours, the Caribbean, 76, under 19 tours. Um, I'd seen him struggle a bit you know, we all, you know that that sort of that era of players like him myself various others who came through you know it looked as though he should have been more productive than he had been up until that 84 85 tour of india so he came back from india full of confidence and he carried that confidence through so you know that's how batsmen sort of to half answer mike's question from earlier that's how batsmen profit because when you believe in yourself and yeah and luck comes with it you know sort of kind of comes with it and things go your way. Then you end up making big scores and someone reminds you that you better make the most of it because just around the corner is a time where everything will go horribly wrong again. So he, he was just in good form. And that, that is pretty much the definition of good form. And he, he I think there's another element to Gat, which I, I always mm. I always felt this anyway, because he, of course, he, he that tour of India, uh, he, because he got his maiden test 100 in uh, in, in, in uh, Wankadu Stadium in the, in the first test of that yep. series, didn't he? And that was after about 30-odd mm-hmm. innings in test matches. And I always thought there was something about Gat that was maybe he hadn't quite got test match stamina yet, that Gat, mm-hmm. all his county career, because we were playing like 117 overs a day in county cricket, the game went progressed quite rapidly. And for Gat to get 100, Gat would get 100 in three hours. That was the norm for Gat. Mm-hmm. 100 took him three hours, say. And three hours in Test cricket, you're not going to get a hundred, not very often. And I don't think yeah. I, th- I think Gat had this mentality where if he'd been batting for three hours, he would think I should have a hundred by now. I can't be playing very well. <laughs> and it took a little while for him to understand that actually that was not how it was. And once he got that, of course, he he there was no stopping him, was there? Uh, uh, Mike, I want to ask you about the Middlesex spin twins, Edmonds and Embury, yeah. um, because as England were, were pushing for the win, um, they bowled 105 overs in the Australian second innings. I mean, it was the era before sort of Warren and Moralitter and to some extent 
kind of revolutionised how we think about spin bowling uh, in terms of attacking. They were obviously good. They've they've huge number of uh, first class wickets behind them as well as successful Test careers. But did they really attack enough in those days, or or, or was it was their view to to wait for the batsman to make a mistake or to to work an attritional plan rather than than bowling well, two, them out? Yeah, two entirely different bowlers. In, yeah, in, yeah. In method there. I mean, Philip tried to pitch legging it off every ball. That was part of his downfall in some respects. I, mean, I think David will bear this out. When the, the, the mm. saving grace, he was brilliant in India that previous winter. And one of the yeah. reasons he was brilliant yeah. was because he lost his run-up, a two-pace run-up, and he lost <laughs> it. And he, and he had to concentrate so hard on that that there wasn't room for him to mess around. He just had to bowl. Same with Percy Pocock on that trip, wasn't it? You know, you've got the two... Yep sort of what I might call biggest mess about bowlers, brilliant bowlers, but ones who kept trying stuff all the time, you know, Percy had his round arm ball, all this stuff. And actually they were both bold and bold <laughs> and bold. And and that's all it needed. Philip was fantastic bowler, fantastic yeah. bowler. As indeed was Embers, but Embers was different. Embers was attritional. He bowled wicket to wicket. Sometimes he almost bowled round the wicket from over the wicket. He bowled that close, that tight in. He was a bowler who had loop. He bowled. He, his, his biggest asset was getting bounce. I think more than turn. He got people round the back. Mm-hmm. Caught about. Didn't he get Alan Border out in that series, David, with one that bounced quite? Did it? Kinch, was that another series? I can't remember. But he certainly was Alan well, Border. Well, the, the famous one for Embers was the eighty-one Esperson one, where that'd be that'd be the one I'm thinking of. It was a very typical Embury wicket, wasn't it? You know, it yeah. just came from yeah. nowhere, bounced. And that, that, so they would, they complemented each other magnificently as as bowlers, um, uh, and you know just really really high class together. Yeah, I mean, I remember Embury would get the drift, and uh, Edmonds would get that sharp turn uh, off the pitch. But David, you bowled you bowled them for a hundred and five overs again. Was was that because you, you didn't fancy the the seamers, or did you think at any moment we're going to get the breakthrough here and and get through the rest of the Australian order? Because it was you know they were, you were quite close to winning that match. Yeah, the word flats rings to mind. Yes. Um it was. I mean, I. I mean, I. Yeah. I mean, following on from Sel's comments, I mean, I, I had great faith in both of them, and I loved having Philip in the side. I mean, one of, one of the things that Philip would say to me every game would be, within the first two or three overs, he'd be at short legs to the seamers, whether it's covered in grass or not, and within the first couple of overs, he'd come to me on a you know, change of overs and say, "Dave, I'm not averse to an early bowl," <laughs> and he wanted. You know, yeah, I loved it. I just yeah. almost time it. You know, just, uh, just wait for it. Ten minutes. Yeah, here we go. So, and just you know, learning to control Philip was fascinating for me because he'd have his moments. Um, he'd bowl for hours if he wanted him to. He, in fact, he never wanted to stop bowling. So actually, getting him off was quite hard. And sometimes you just say, "Okay, right, stop now. Disappear somewhere. You know, go to the deep. Just gather your thoughts, and you'll be back." Um, and I loved, I loved playing with Philip. But on, you know, but pitches like that one at Old Trafford, you—it's it's one of those ones where you succumb to the feeling in the end, well, there's just nothing happening. You know, without sort of devaluing the runs that people scored, um, you know, there are pitches which tilt the balance in favour of batsmen. And if you know, if at the end there's no real turn and there's no real bounce and you know, it's just basically FLAT, well, you can try it if you like and they would have tried whatever they could. But if you don't get the breakthrough, you don't get the breakthrough. Yeah. So they go to Edgbaston, uh, still 1-1 for the fifth 
uh, test of the six-match series. And Pat England find their second somewhat unlikely hero of the series after Tim Robinson with the bat. It's Richard Ellison with the ball. Richard Ellison was the ideal man at the time, wasn't he? Because Border was holding the side together, the Aussies together. And Ellison's ability to bowl really close to the stumps, move it late in a damp English summer. He was just the perfect man for David to bring in uh, when the Aussies were there for the taking towards the end of the series. And he bowled absolutely beautifully at Edgbaston and at the Oval. And mentioning the damp summer and those slow pitches, I'm absolutely amazed at the scoring rate that England came up with that, that, that summer. You know, their overall run rate was 3.64 and over. Doesn't sound too much in these T20 days, but it was the fastest ever by a side in Ashes contests up to then. And in my mind's eye is the ball just careering to the boundary, courtesy of Botham, Gower, Robinson, Gooch and co. And the Aussies made a major error by playing four frontline bowlers. That was a, a big mistake. Only Craig McDermott really put his hand up, age 20. He was their lone bowling success. McDermott and Lawson between them, they took 52 of 69 wickets in that test series. And the rest of them were just not up to snuff at all. And that was very unlike the Australians. I think we also need to acknowledge that they were racked by internal divisions, just like England were in 89 when David was captain with the South African excursion. Gooch, Embry, Willie and Les Taylor, they they came back into the Ashes side in 85 after an excursion to South Africa in 82. But the Aussies were lacking uh, Hughes, Yallop, Terry Alderman, Hogg, Rackerman, and it's rumoured that Wellham, Wood and Wayne Phillips, they'd all changed their minds about going to South Africa. That led to tensions in the Australian camp. A bit reminiscent of 1977 and the World Series cricket when England rolled them over 3-0 in England. But uh, that elusive concept, team spirit, that was obviously affected uh, with the Australian camp. And the way that they subsided in those last two test matches uh, made me think that was definitely uh, added credence to the South African uh, problems there. David, if I can ask you, because Pat's already mentioned that scoring rate, um, England made 595 for five declared at four and a half and over. Did you feel like that was really putting the foot on the Australian throat and that it, it almost was worth a win and a half, that test match at Edgbaston? In the end, yeah. I mean, the... You know, people will ask the question, you know, was it a plan? Well, not really. It just evolved by itself. Uh, and because Tim played so well at the top of the innings, I was in prime nick, took the attack to pretty much everyone. We were able to, and we, cause we'd lost a bit of time right at the start of that game, a little bit of iffy weather. Uh, so we were aware that time might run out on us if we didn't get on with it. And it's just, again, one of those things when it clicks into place as a captain, as a batsman, as a team, you just run with it. And it put us into a good position. And then going back to this thing of Richard Ellison, Ellie bowled one of the most beautiful spells you will ever see on the fourth evening. He was absolutely unplayable. He bowled a ball to border, which I'm sure AB uh, will remember it as vividly as I do. It just seemed to swing in nicely, pitched and left him, clipped the top of off stump. You know, we were able to exult. Border just walked off completely bemused. And that was the absolute key to that fourth night. So it left us, I think, with five to get on the final day. Uh, and we had that horrible thing in the morning where there was horribly English light mizzle uh, all, all around Birmingham. So he couldn't get on the field, couldn't get on the field. It wasn't uh, oval like whenever that was in the 77 oval like deluges. It was just light mizzle. 
And AB, I remember AB sort of sitting in the dressing rooms, the old pavilion at Birmingham at Edgerton there, just giggling, uh, watching the rain come down, thinking we're going to get away with this. And luckily for us, the mizzle stopped. We got out there and took the wickets we needed. So that was the culmination of that game, which had it been denied by rain would have been an awful shame because we'd done everything so well to get ourselves into a winning position. And we needed... The other point being that we needed to win that series to get the Ashes back. You know, drawing yeah. the series wouldn't have been good enough. So it was the victory that gave us the absolute springboard to go to the Oval and finish it off. So you, you do go to the Oval and yourself and Graham Gooch uh, put on 351 for the second wicket. Um, Mike, was this a kind of golden summer for, for English Ashes cricket? Have we ever had this dominance before or, or after? I mean, that was that that kind of summed up the whole thing, didn't it? That last Test match there with the uh, the runs. It was just a it was a sort of a romp. I'm, I'm one of the things I'm intrigued about that last Test match is is actually making Australia follow on. Mm. I mean, I, I, David, you, you talk us through it, obviously about your your reasoning for that yeah. because you know and I know that no way in a million years with a 200-run lead now, just over 200-run lead, would you say, follow on, oh, we'll have another back because we don't want to bat last on it? Yeah, it was. Um, it's a good point because despite that first day was followed by a bit of a second-day collapse, uh, Australia then were basically tired, I think, by the time we got to that final Test match. And remember putting that in perspective, not just the six games, but it must have been three months' work because everyone goes back to... If the Aussies would go and play county sides in between, we would go back as England players to our respective county sides and play county cricket, come back for the next test. So it kind of dragged it out a long, long time. But we seem to have the absolute impetus from Birmingham and therefore the, the greater incentive just to finish it off. Now, as we were taking those wickets in Aussies' first innings, every time you come together, the players are going, well, so what are you going to do, Skip? What are you going to do? And I sort of held my counsel, held my counsel for a while. But growing in me was the feeling that they were so down that we might as well just get on with it. Uh, and there were players saying exactly what you say, which is, well, hang on, but if we stick them in again and they get runs and then we have to chase you know, 150, might that be? No, no, no. So I just, I just had that instinct. I mean, luckily it worked. I, I guess there have been others before me and I've probably made declarations or made decisions which have gone the other way. But I had that feeling in my guts, that sort of instinct that, this was it, and this is where I actually just I just said no, fine, we're going to. You know, I just checked quickly with the bowlers if they had the energy, as it were, and if, you know, as long as they were all fit and strong still, and they seemed to be happy enough. So I said no, fine, we'll make them bat again. How many overs did they bowl? Two four, two forty, weren't they? How many overs did they bowl for that? It was eighty four overs. I'm not pleased the bowlers would say, yeah, we'll have another go at that, because I imagine mm. there'd be quite a few bowlers who were saying, oh, we're not sure we can go through. We need to go again. Yeah, let's have we like to put the feet up, don't they? <laughs> I say they, 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 well, yeah. they, they. Yeah. it's not us, it's they now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I mean, that, that's, also, that's also one of those times where, as a captain, maybe not understanding bowlers is good, because then, or maybe understanding yeah. them well enough to know that's what they might be thinking is good, because you can say, right, this is a team, it's my decision for the good of the team, and as long as you're prepared to back me and give it a go, we'll be fine. I mean, it, we, I remember as the game finished, though, we've managed to get the game done on day four, and probably about an hour or so after that final collapse by Australia, and after all the celebrations, little Ashes presentation, three floors up and the rest of it, um, an hour later it was chucking it down. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? And I, I, to be honest, with all the celebrations, I have no idea how long it chucked it down, whether it was for a few hours, for three days, or 
I don't know what happened on what would have been day five, but we were rather enjoying the moment. Well, um, England certainly did enjoy their success. It was a 3-1 win. Uh, the last two of the six test series go into England's way and it was to be 20 years before we won the Ashes again in England. Uh, Pat, what's your abiding memory of that summer of 85? My happiest memory about 1985 is the ammunition we could have in subsequent tours to Australia. Six successive tours to Australia uh, when we were rubbish. From 1991 until 2006 7 I could always say, where were you in 1985 when the Australians were hopeless, really, apart from McDermott and Border, and to a lesser extent, Ritchie. England were superb that, that summer, well-led, uh, scored at great pace, bowled extremely well. And uh, for those of us who are steeped in the Ashes contest, who are used to getting a lot of stick from the Aussies, it's great fun to keep referring to 1985. <laughs> um, I'll give you the last word, David, as you held up the urn. Um, how do you look back on, on that summer? Very, very fondly. It was, I mean, personally, so being very selfish about this, personally, it was my finest summer with the bat. Um, if you're going to captain England against anyone, you'd like it to be against Australia. And if you're going to do that, you'd like to win. So it had ticked every box. Uh, and from the, you know, from that slightly dodgy start that preceded the start of the Ashes series itself for the Texaco Trophy. So it was a, a welcome relief, a welcome triumph, a proud moment. Um, it's the sort of thing that as an England player, you dream about being able to captain uh, and win the Ashes. And when you get to that moment, I mean, it, it is sort of ironic. You are, in those days, you were up there with the BBC, with Peter West, three floors up on a balcony somewhere in the pavilion in the Oval. And the crowd is on the field below you. And you're holding the Ashes earth up. And I always liken it to a sort of the stoning scene from The Life of Brian, where the people at the back are going, oh, what's going on then? What's happening? Because they can't see. And I can imagine the crowd downstairs, this trophy, which is, what, four and a half inches high, and you're holding it up. And no one's got a clue what's going on there. Luckily, you know, someone with a long lens will record the moment for posterity. Um, but it's a sort of slightly ironic thing that your greatest triumph, the thing you will remember from your career forever, is all centred on this minuscule trophy, massive in the history, but minuscule in its physical stature. Uh, and yet, you know, the, one of the, you know, the photographs I will have at home which show the moment are photographs of... One of the proudest moments, as simple as that. Well, uh, I don't think the Holy Grail is the same size as the uh, European Cup for football. So uh, the size of the trophy does not correlate with the size of the win and indeed the iconic status uh, of it. So, um, well, we were, I, I wasn't actually on the field, but metaphorically I was on the field and it looked, it looked a bloody big win to us fans. I promise you that, David. Well, now, now, now you've led us into a completely different avenue. Which was the better <laughs> film? Life of Brian or Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Very good. Our listeners can tweet us at Crickshow 80s, 90s with, with their view on that and indeed anything else that has come up uh, in this uh, show. So it remains only really for me to thank uh, Pat Murphy. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Mike Selby. Thank you very much, Mike. My pleasure as always. Uh, and David Gower. Thank you very much, David. No, I loved it. Thank you very much indeed yeah. for the... Um, for the platform. Super. That's great. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. <laughs>